change the way that we think and the way that we live and that Christ might receive glory through it. So help us now as we study the scripture together. Open it up. Help me to speak clearly and with conviction and help every one of us to have ears ready to hear what the Spirit has to say to us personally as well as as a church. We ask this for the glory of Christ. Amen. So yeah, we've been going through the book of Philippians, kind of a long, long study, although we had about a year and a half of break with COVID. So we picked it up uh, a while back in chapter three, and we're in chapter four now in the first part of it, going to getting ready to bring the plane down, so to speak. We're, we're, we're going to land this plane pretty quick, but we want to make sure that we're getting all that we can out of this flight uh, going through this precious letter that God had Paul write to a church that he had planted in Macedonia, uh, which is in Greece of today. And, and so... Does that mean it doesn't have anything for us? You know, it was written by Paul to this group of people? Well, no, no. God's word is profitable for all his people for all time, right? It's God breathed. It's ever fresh. And so that's how we approach it, and we ask that God would speak to our hearts today. So this particular letter is really all about the advancement of the gospel. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel that Jeff was talking about that changed his life once he knew what it was, knew what Jesus did for him in dying and resurrecting and securing redemption for those who repent and put their faith in him. That's what this epistle is about. Really, you could say the whole Bible is about that. But this particular epistle is all about the advancement of the gospel. And Paul's kind of walked us through a number of different things about his own feelings for the church in the beginning. And then talking about his imprisonment in Rome. And even that imprisonment did not hinder the spread of the gospel. He said it actually caused the advancement of the gospel to go into places where it otherwise would not have gone. Like through Roman soldiers, all the way into the household of Caesar. And that wouldn't have happened had God not had him imprisoned in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. Can you imagine the soldiers and how they heard the gospel day in and day out? And they saw the gospel day in and day out in Paul's life. And then he talks about the church, and he, he talks about... Uh, that they're going to face persecution, but that they need to stand together, you know, be united uh, in the gospel and love one another and help one another and secure one another. And, and he kind of turns to his thought about unity in the church, how important it is. It's such a big deal that when the world looks at the church, they see a unified group of people who love God and love one another. In fact, Jesus had said it well, by this will men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that love produces a unity. And he talked about that in the first few verses of chapter 4. And then he said, you know, unity takes humility. And if you want the most excellent example of all about that, look to Jesus. And you get this beautiful theological hymn about Jesus in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. How he humbled himself. Though he was God, he entered into time and space. He humbled himself and 
took on the form of a servant, came in the likeness of men, humbled himself unto death, even the worst kind of death, a criminal's death by the Romans, death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then began to demonstrate in the latter part of chapter 2 that there are examples that could be followed in living this kind of humble, unified, God-glorifying lifestyle. And he gave Timothy as an example, and he gave Epaphroditus as an example. Then in chapter 3, he started talking about his own life and how God had reached him. He was in the, you know, in, in the in, inner circle of Judaism. He had this list of spiritual resumes, so to speak, you know, he was at the top of the class. He was the valedictorian. He was the, he was the, he was the top. And he said, but he came to realize when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus that all of that was not a gain. It was a loss. It was a loss. It was, a, it was deficient. It not only did not bring him to God, but it actually drew him away from God. And so he made it his aim once he met Christ, to know Christ, to know him more and more fully, to gain Christ in his fullness, even if that led to his own suffering and death. I want to be like Christ. I want to know him in his suffering and in his death, he said, conformed to his death. And then he jumped on to more examples. He said, so follow my example, Philippians. Follow my example, church. And, and others like me. And be on, be on guard. There are going to be others that are going to try to lead you away. So every time the gospel is going forth, the enemy is putting forth those that will bring deception. Lead people away from the truth. And it might just be a slight deviation that in the long run is a huge deviation. Or it might be, you know, in your face, just opposite religion. It, it doesn't matter. It is not the gospel. And so he warns them again about that. And he, he talks about how we have this great promise of Jesus coming again. It's worth living for Jesus because of the promise of him coming again. And he's going to transform our humble bodies into bodies like his own after he was resurrected. Glorified bodies. Bodies built for the eternal in the presence of God. But he's not done encouraging or giving instruction to the Philippians. And that's where he picks up in chapter 4. So let's read verses 1 through uh, 7 this morning. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in, in, thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
Now, verses 8 and 9 are going to give some more commands, but what Paul's doing at the end of this letter is he's giving some final exhortations to them. And it's almost like bing, 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 bing. Uh, I didn't cover it already, but this is an important part of living out the gospel too. And we've already seen, uh, as we've taken two weeks on these verses so far, and we've only gotten through verse 3, that the first command that he gave them was to stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. He had said that in chapter 1 and verse 27. Stand fast together in the Lord for the faith. And he's saying it here too. Why? Because he knows that deceivers are coming and the persecution is coming. So he's telling them again, stand firm, be steadfast in the Lord. Don't let any false teaching or any persecution cause you to go astray, to lead you away. Don't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, but rather hold fast to the truth of the gospel that I delivered to you. So stand firm, stand firm. The second command was to live in unity, and that was verses 2 and 3. And you notice that he talked about two women in the church that obviously everyone knew that was in that church. He's writing this letter, by the way, to a church. It will be read in front of the church. And these two women are named by name in this letter. So this is an important point. I urge Yodia, and I urge or entreat Syntyche. I nicknamed them Odious and Stinky. <laughs> Only because of what was going on. Because their lives were not showing forth the gospel. They were being stinky towards one another. Their their activities towards one another, attitudes toward one another, was odious to the Lord. He's talking about unity once again. We must live in unity. And he's willing to go to the point of even bringing some embarrassment. No doubt they would be embarrassed when they didn't know that their names were in this letter and someone's just reading the letter from the apostle and I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to get along, to agree with one another, to have the same mind, the same goals, think the same way. In other words, love one another for the sake of the gospel and the truth going out. Well, that is necessary. You know, and the, the truth is that happens in churches, doesn't it? And it's, it's not just that we're attacked from the outside, and we are, but there's dangers that happen inside a church where we get divided, where we don't have unity, where we don't love one another. In fact, we get angry to the point of bitterness towards one another. Oh, God, keep us from that. Live in unity. Okay, that was our review. Let's pick it up in verse 4 with the third of these final exhortations that he gives and that is to rejoice at all times. Rejoice at all times. He, he puts it this way. Let me get to it in my own notes here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Did you get that? Rejoice in the Lord always. Wait a minute. I'll say it again. That's what he, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Right? Rejoice. And the idea is, have that kind of joy that is expressed, like at festive seasons. We're coming up on the holidays, Thanksgiving, 
and, uh, and uh, Christmas celebrations, festive seasons, but it's, we have a lot of them during the year, whether it's 4th of July or other events, or just think of a bunch of people getting together, and it's just a great time. It's festive, and joy is just abundant. He says, rejoice in the Lord like that, but do it around the clock, every day, every hour, every minute. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I think all too often we, we don't. We're not joyful. We, we, we've lost sight of the fact that Nehemiah had written that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we become weak because we don't have the joy of the Lord filling us up. And we try to explain away our lack of joy at times by saying, well, I have joy in the Lord. It's just that every other area of my life kind of stinks. What? Do you hear yourself if you think in that way? I mean, that's, that's not right, is it? Such a statement shows that we're not seeing the Lord actively working in every area of our lives. We, we compartmentalize our life. Like, I have joy in the Lord when I go to church. I love to sing and worship, raise my hand and all of that. And I, I have joy at other times. But, you know, home life kind of really rotten right now. I'm really struggling or... You know, I don't like the people that I work with, or, you know, I just, I, I go in with a bad attitude, and I leave with a bad attitude, and we don't have to compartmentalize our lives that way. The Lord should be active in every area of our lives. Each and every day, we are to, as Paul would write to the Thessalonians, we are to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. First Thessalonians five eighteen. You know, giving thanks is connected to being joyful, isn't it? And he says the same thing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And there he said, uh, give thanks in all circumstances. Only the good ones? Only the happy ones? No, no. In all circumstances. You mean even when I, I wasn't driving carefully and I slid into someone and got in an accident? Yeah, even then. Even then. Or when I have to have surgery on a knee and I really don't want to go through another surgery, I've already had too many of them. Yeah, even then. Even then. Or whatever your circumstances, give thanks in all things, rejoice in all things. You know, it was James who, who said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its complete work he says making you perfect or mature and complete lacking in nothing so do you feel like you're lacking do you feel like you're lacking maybe it's connected to a lack of joy it says count it all joy. In fact, if you look at the Greek text, it actually puts joy for emphasis at the very front of the verse. Joy, consider it, when you face all kinds of various trials. It's a good thing to go through trials. Hmm, really? Yeah, because in the midst of those things, we learn that God is at work in us and through us. And he uses those hard times, those difficult times, to build us up and make us more like Christ. You know, so in the midst of those things that bring most people to a state of worry or anger or 
discontentment or despair, the Christian is to do what? That's right. Rejoice. Rejoice and give thanks. They're to consider their encounter with a trial as a good thing, as a God thing, as a wonderful thing. Let's be honest. Right? We don't always do that, do we? So we're not only being disobedient to the Lord, but we're not reaping what the Lord wants to do in our lives when we don't have that kind of attitude. That it's a good thing, a godly thing, a, a joyous thing. It doesn't mean that it's a happy thing to go through a trial. There's pain associated with it, whether it's sorrow or it's physical pain or it's financial pain or whatever it may be. It, it's difficult to go through. That's why it's called a trial, an affliction. And yet we are to see the end of it. We are always to be people who have an end view, right? We look forward to the coming of Christ, always. Eagerly awaiting the return of Christ. Paul said, I press toward the goal, the high mark of the calling of God, call me into the presence of Jesus. We're always to be forward thinkers, and that's what we should be when we face trials. He would write in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's powerful. Sorrowful, but rejoicing at the same time. That's quite a mixture of emotion, isn't it? Quite a mixture. The sorrow, the loss of someone. It could be a child, it could be a grandparent. It could be the sorrow or loss of a, of a, of a spouse whether by death or by divorce. The sorrow of a child going astray, abandoning what you've tried to put into their lives. Sorrow is part of living here, isn't it? Yet rejoicing, he says. Yet rejoicing. And then he says, poor, as poor, yet making many rich. Those are the extremes. I'm poor. I don't have a lot of financial stuff. And yet, I am the richest person in all the world because I have been given the gift of Christ. As having nothing, he says, yet possessing everything. Wow. That's very powerful. So Christians are, are those who should be spending their time rejoicing rather than worrying or being angry or holding grudges or despairing or being discontent. Some of you will remember the song from years ago by Bobby McFerrin. Don't worry, be happy. That's right. Over and over and over and over and I just listened to it again yesterday. Over and over and over and over again. Don't worry, be happy. And he, he goes through several scenarios like, yeah, you don't have the money to pay the rent. Don't worry, be happy. You don't have a bed to sleep on. Don't worry, be happy. Uh, you don't have a spouse to share life with. Don't worry, be happy. And, you know, I'm sure that Bobby McFerrin was not looking at the problem of worry or other difficult emotions from a biblical perspective. But his song was not far off from what Paul is actually saying in our, the context that we've read this morning, rejoice in the Lord always. Don't worry. Right? Be joyful. Be joy- or happy in the sense of as Pastor Greg taught as he went, was going through the Sermon on the Mount, 
uh, like the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who mourn, those who are poor. Blessed in the sense of happy, happy in the extreme happy, happy in the joy God-given happy. Don't worry. Be happy, be joyful. Yeah, that's what Paul was saying. You know, worrying won't change a thing. Right? It won't change anything by worrying. Um, You might as well, I don't know, rejoice instead. (laughs) One person said that uh, worriers spend a lot of time shoveling smoke. Okay, get that word picture in your head. That's a good word picture. You know, go to your campfire where smoke is billowing up, take a shovel and try to shovel the smoke. It's pretty ineffective. Doesn't do anything. Another said, worry is like a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. As I thought through that, I thought of uh, my sister-in-law who loves to rock. And she has a, a, you know, a fixed kind of recliner chair that she rocks in when we go visit. And I'm hearing the mechanism. (laughs) Drives me crazy. But I rejoice all the same that I could be there with her. But I was thinking of an actual rocking chair that have the wood, you know, and you're rocking. You actually go backwards if you keep rocking. You'll be into the wall. Digging a hole in the wall if you're rocking in a regular walking chair. So worrying doesn't get you anywhere. It actually gets you backwards. Put that in the context of the spiritual life. Worrying worrying won't accomplish anything that God wants to do in our lives. It will draw us further away from what he wants to do in our lives. And certainly will impede the spread of the gospel if we are people who are showing that we're worrying about everything. So the simple truth is that the kinds of harsh emotions that we all experience, that I've already mentioned, you know, anger and discontent and despair and and bitterness and worry, are at the very least impediments, right? Impediments to our knowing Christ more fully and living in a way that will bring him glory. And at worst, such emotions produce the opposite, a life that dishonors the Lord who died for us, to fill us with joy, joy that comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling us, which is one of his fruit given to us. Not only that, as I thought through this, that, you know, these kinds of difficult emotions worry anger, bitterness, so on and so forth, if we give in to them, it causes us to quench the Holy Spirit who indwells us. If we're God's children, the Spirit's in us. He wants our life to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and kindness and self-control and other things like that against which there is no law. No one's ever going to say, stop being so gentle. The law forbids you to be kind. No, there's no law against the fruit of the Spirit being shown in our lives. He wants to fill us with that. And when we worry, or we get angry, or we hold 
we give in to our anger, we have bitterness, or we hold grudges against others, those kinds of things. It's like, it's like taking a hose, hooking it up to your spigot, turning it on, and the water's flowing freely through that hose. And, and then you pick up the hose and you kink it. And the water's not flowing. And that's the picture of what Paul means in Thessalonians when it says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. When we worry, we're quenching the Spirit. When we're bitter, we're quenching the Spirit. When we're holding on to grudges against people, we're quenching the Spirit. When we're, we're despairing because where is God in all of this? We're quenching the Holy Spirit. That's, and, and if you're quenching the Spirit, I, I get this feeling. There's not a whole lot of joy filling you up. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But I guess the question is, how are we supposed to do this, you know, rejoice the Lord always? Is it really possible? Is it really possible for us to rejoice at all times? Well, let me say, you know, it, it only makes sense that if God commands us to do something, that it's possible to do it. Right? God, through Paul, says, rejoice as a command, as an imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. So the command would not be given if it were not possible to rejoice always. But I think the how is really bound up in the why. How do I rejoice always? It's because I know why I should rejoice always. And I think, just two, two thoughts on that. Number one, we should rejoice always because we know that God is sovereign. I mean, if you believe in the God of the Bible, he is sovereign, right? He's in control of all things. God is sovereign. And he will use the trial, the difficulty we're experiencing that is producing these kinds of negative emotions. He will use it in our lives if we'll let him. And he will take it and he will produce in us more Christ-like character. So that's one reason reason why we should rejoice always, because God is sovereign. And he's using whatever we're experiencing that brings these difficulties to make us more like the Savior who died for us. Again, think of James. I already read these verses, but think of it again in light of what I've just said. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does that mean? That means you look and live more like Jesus. Right? Now secondly, the why is because at this, you know, the, the sufferings of this present time are just not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. That's Romans 8 and verse 18, and you can read the following verses after that, but that's what Paul says, that all the sufferings of this present time, well, what is this present time? Well, just think it in these terms. The moment you're born to the moment you die. This life where you're not living in the very presence of God. This present time where we're waiting for the return of Christ. We're waiting for our hope to be realized in its fullness. When Jesus will come and establish his kingdom in its fullness, that kingdom that Greg has been preaching about out of the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's, it's kind of tough living here, waiting for that. But the point is, we keep looking unto that, and we realize that all the suffering that we experience, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, whether it's financial, it's relational, whatever it is, all the sufferings that you've experienced in your life up until this point and will experience until, as a believer, you enter into the presence of the Lord, it's not even worth putting on a scale where you would put the glory to be revealed to us and the present sufferings because the glory would just bottom out and the, the sufferings would seem like light feathers because they're light, 2 Corinthians 4. They're light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory. So here it is. Learn, learn to rejoice. In fact, I'd say, learn to laugh a little. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of laughing going on in our world as of late. A lot of anxiety. A lot of vitriol. Angst. Hatred. Road rage. Political riots. Firebombs murders, etc., etc. Not a whole lot of rejoicing, not a whole lot of laughing, but we as the children of God should learn to rejoice and learn to laugh. And, and, and if you don't, you'll pay the price. You pay the price. Because you're, you're, you're moving away from Jesus rather than drawing near to him. Fred Allen, who was a humorist of old uh, used to say that it was bad to suppress your laughter because when you do, it goes down and spreads to your hips. <laughs> I prefer what Solomon said in Proverbs fifteen thirteen: A glad heart makes a cheerful face. Some people need to learn the connection between their heart and their face, Right? A glad heart makes a cheerful face. But by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. And then he said in, in uh, chapter 15, verse 15, All the days that the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Wow, isn't that beautiful? The joy of the Lord, cheerful in the Lord, is like... Being at a banquet set by the Lord, prepared by the Lord for us. And by the way, we're going to experience that in a coming day. And then Proverbs seventeen twenty two, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Hmm. Good stuff. So, rejoice. Right? Rejoice in the Lord. Always rejoice in the Lord. The next exhortation that he gives is in verse 5. Be reasonable, not demanding. If you're filling in your insert that you've been holding on to for a few weeks. Be reasonable, not demanding. The way he writes it is, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. So it is the person who rejoices and does not give in to their negative emotions, the command that we just talked about, that will be able to show gentleness, 
reasonableness, considerateness, uh, forbearance towards other people. When you're busy rejoicing, you're not all about fighting with others. In fact, you want to you want to smooth things out if at all possible, right? And the Greek word for reasonableness, as the ESV has it, also translated in, uh, in other. Uh, translations of the Bible, gentleness, considerateness, moderation, graciousness, forbearance. I was, I was just kind of startled again as I was looking at this just a couple days ago, this particular word being translated so many different ways. They all kind of are connected, right? Gentleness, considerateness, moderation, graciousness, forbearance, and reasonableness. They it all refers to having a humble uh, patience which is able to submit to injustice and disgrace and mistreatment without, without hatred and anger and malice and worry while trusting in God the whole time. That's what reasonableness, that's what this word is referring to, this humble patience where I can submit to all the stuff that's going around the world and right in my own life that creates worry, anger, etc., 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 and I can submit to it, trusting that God is working out his good plan, right? This quality stands in direct contrast to a pugnacious individual. Well, that's not a word that you hear a lot of. I'm not sure that Many of us know, would know what that word is. They might think of a pug dog, you know, with a wrinkled up snout. And it's not a bad picture. I mean, a pugnacious person is like, you know, all messed up inside. So, but a pugnacious individual, the word that's used here, referred to the person who wore a chip on their shoulder. Now, that's a phrase that is used. Man, he's got a real chip on his shoulder, doesn't he? What, what, what do you mean when you say that? You, what you mean, it's like, be careful what you say because that person might turn on you in a heartbeat and beat you with words or beat you with their fist. Right? That's the pugnacious individual. Not a reasonable person, not a gentle person, not a moderate person, not a gracious person. I mean, this is, this is the, you know, that kind of person is one who thinks that their view and only their view about anything is the right view. Their opinions, their convictions are the only correct positions to have. Their personal rights supersede everyone else's personal rights. Hmm. Everyone, everyone, we get it, don't This is the world we live in, what I've just described. Right? That's the word. We live in a world of pugnacious individuals. And we are to be in stark contrast as children of God. Gentle, forbearing, gracious. And sadly, I would say that the church, the church, hasn't done well in the last year and a half in showing that. It seems like the church, again, those people calling themselves the church, 
have been ready for a fight. Taking up arms, in a sense, to do battle against those that they feel are the enemy. I mean, that is the spirit of the age in which we live. Everyone demanding that their opinions and convictions must be agreed to or there's going to be a nasty fight. And, and never before, in my lifetime at least, have, has there been a time when our culture is so divided, attitudes and actions, where sides are taken and everyone on the other side of issues like, I don't know, face masks, vaccinations, political leanings, which news programs you would listen to or read. I mean, we're ready for a fight. That's the way it seems to go. And it's produced a culture that is ready to explode, right? It's ready to explode. In fact, I mean, the police, uh, all the police in particular cities in Wisconsin have been put on no leave, everyone present, just waiting for, uh, you know, the result of the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, they're expecting it to be like it was last year with firebombs and, you know, all kinds of... That's the culture in which we live. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be so starkly different from that. We are to be rejoicing in the Lord always, and that will put us in a position where we can be gentle and, and, and compassionate and forbearing with people. Those kinds of attitudes are not Christian. They're not Christian. They're not Christ-like. Now, that is not to say that, you know, uh, we should see that the reasonable or gentle person is one who's, you know, just become a wimp and give in to whatever, you know, anyone wants to do to you. Paul's not suggesting that. What he's actually saying is that, that the gentle person, the compassionate person, the forbearing person is one who's so strong that they don't need to fight. They don't need to take up arms for their personal rights, their personal opinions, their personal convictions. They'll stand up for truth, but not for those things. They don't need to be bullies who demand that everyone yield to their opinions. The general or reasonable person is one who is gracious and considerate to others and their opinions and their convictions. So do you see Do you see how having a joyful attitude coupled with the gentle spirit, which does not need to fight for personal rights, will result in unity in the body and peace in the body? So often our anger or worry or disappointment or other negative emotions are a result of not being gentle and not being reasonable. When we demand our own way, in our own rights, the result is sure to be a heart filled with angst, not peace. That's not from the Spirit, right? Angst isn't from the Spirit. It's not one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, angst? No. Peace is. Joy is. Love is. 
And, and when we move to angst and those other kinds of things, the unity which is to characterize the church will be lost, and then we will no longer stand firm in the Lord. All of these commands are connected. So it's at this point that Paul suddenly inserts this, this uh, phrase, the Lord is at hand. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonable be, uh, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's not a command. That's just a statement, right? But it's related to what he has just said. And the meaning of this phrase is actually somewhat elusive because it can mean one of two things. I actually think it could mean both things, intentionally by God. First, the word at hand, or some of your translations have the Lord is near, means the same thing. The Greek word engus means at hand or at near, and it means first at hand or near in space. Get that? Near, the Lord is near in space. And if that's what Paul is actually saying, then standing firm in the Lord and living in unity and rejoicing at all times and maintaining a gentle spirit is connecting, connected to knowing that the Lord is constantly with you. I love reading Genesis every year when I get to the life of Joseph and I read the repeated the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. And look at his life. It was the life like Christ. Life what we are being encouraged to be uh, like. So in that sense, the Lord is ever close. And, and he's concerned with our situation. He walks with us, as the old hymns. He walks with us and he talks with us. As we go along life's path, right? He's right there with us. Do you believe that? Amen. 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 And because he is close and he's not afar off, he can come to your aid in your difficult trial. Whatever various kind of trial that may be. It made me think of Psalm 32, 10 and 11, which says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What a contrast. The life of the wicked, who does not know God, and the life of the righteous, who do know God. And there's joy in that. There's gladness in that. It made me think of a, you know, a young girl going to a doctor to, to get a shot. And uh, when she learns that the doctor, what the doctor is about to do, and she, she starts to feel anxiety building up, Right? Maybe some of you are like little children when it comes to shots. You know, and you get anxious about it. Oh, it's going to hurt. I don't want to do it. I don't need the shot. And, you know, she felt that. And, and then she sees the doctor pick up the hypodermic and the needle. And the needle looks so big to her that it would scare an elephant. But then she looks to her dad, who's in the room with her. And her dad looks into her eyes and communicates, I'm with you. It's going to be okay. I'm right here with you. And before you know it, it's all over and all is well. That's kind of the way it should be with us when we feel the, the needle of fear or anxiety or whatever it is coming at us. Like, look to the eyes of Jesus who 
loves us. Look to the eyes of your heavenly Father. He is with you. He's near in space to you. Now, secondly, the word that is translated at hand or near can mean near in time. Near in time. And if that's what Paul is thinking, then he would be focusing on, what do you think? The imminent return of Jesus, right? The imminent return of the Lord. I mean, this has been the hope of the believers ever since Jesus ascended up into heaven in Acts chapter 1 and verse 10. When's he going to come back? Looking unto Jesus, awaiting his return. Oh, Lord Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, right? That is our hope. And the promise of the Lord's imminent return, which, by the way, didn't mean soon. It meant when it happens, it happens quickly, or it means at any moment. The Lord's return could happen at any moment. And the New Testament first century believers believed it could happen at any moment, and we still believe it could happen at any moment. That has been the hope of believers throughout the ages. It's always been the truth that sustains believers, whether the circumstances are pleasant or they're painful. I mean, knowing that he will come again and make all things right and good makes the wrongs and the evils of this present age bearable. Knowing that when he comes to bring his kingdom in its fullness, that he will crush, crush the enemy of our souls and we will be welcomed into the kingdom which he prepared for us beforehand. Amen. That makes this harsh world we live in okay. He's near in space. He's near in time. I think both are true. So we must see the exhortations, uh, you know, the exhortation to rejoice always in the Lord, along with, uh, you know, a, a brief and, and to let our reasonableness be shown to all men. See it in connection of the Lord being near to his people. And there's good reason to rejoice and be reasonable when you're faced with difficulty, because the Lord is near in space and in time if you are his child. And if we do not focus on the nearness of the Lord, we can easily move from rejoicing to, I don't know, complaining and grumbling about what others are doing that violates our personal convictions, our personal opinions, what we think is right. Our gentleness and reasonableness will go out the window when we begin to fight for our rights with little thought of how it's impacting others. But if we realize the Lord is near in space and time, that holds us where we need to be in the gospel, in the glory of God, in the joy that the Lord has given us because we have been forgiven of our sin and welcome into his family. And you know what else will come with that? Unity in the body. And standing firm together. Because we'll be unified. We'll stand firm together. You're not going to stand firm by yourself. You'll stand firm when you are united with your brothers and sisters in Christ. All of these are so beautifully put together by the Apostle Paul. I'm kind of looking forward to the next 
the next one in verses 6 and 7. But we're not going to cover that next week. We're going to actually kind of practice it next week. We'll cover it the following week. Next Sunday is our Thanksgiving service where we do an open sharing. We're going to give opportunities for anyone in the body that would like to share some thanksgiving about what the Lord has done. And I think this is particularly good that we do this this year, as well as last year, with all the pain and sorrow and difficulties that COVID has brought into our world, and all the worries that people seem to be, you know, struggling with, and anger, and all that. Let's, let's just open up our mouths next week and give thanks to the Lord. And we can do that in prayer, or we can do that just with you standing up saying, you know, I want to thank the Lord that he did this for me, or he's been this for me this year. So we'll have some mics available. We'll just pass them around. But be thinking about what you want to share next Sunday when we gather. We'll sing some songs together. We'll remember the Lord together as well. There won't be a a sermon as such unless you don't bring the sermon. You'll be the sermon next week, okay? That'll be good. It'll be a wonderful time. Lord, we are thankful. We rejoice in you because of all that you mean to us. Oh, thank you, dear Lord, for your love for us. Such love that the world does not really understand. The love where God himself would take on human form and come and live in in the midst of a sinful world with sinful people, face that day in and day out, every day as a perfect man. And then, on top of that, knowing that he did that so that he could go to a cross as a perfect God-man and bear our sins in his body as he hung on the tree. And to be facing and bearing the full wrath of God for that sin, such that he had to cry out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thank you for such love. You did that for us, Jesus. But our thanks doesn't stop there. We are thankful that you rose from the dead and that you secured eternal life for all those whom you've chosen and called to repentance and faith. So we have much to rejoice in today, and we do. We pray that as we go through our time of just sharing a meal together, that joy will be expressed one to another. Thank you for providing all that we need for life, eternal life and physical life, and godliness. Thank you for the food that we're going to eat and the provision of those people that would serve us by putting it together. You are so good to us. We praise your name. And we do so because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen.